Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This episode is being recorded live from Shop Talk in Las Vegas on Tuesday, March 21st. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, the the voice is uh, very low today. I like that. Well, yeah, it's part of uh, my new Las Vegas persona that I am... uh, uh, trying to simulate laryngitis to see if the, uh, our listeners can notice. That's good on a day when we're recording five podcasts. It's uh, super convenient. Yeah. The, I think the five podcasts and the four presentations I'm doing this week are really benefiting from my new sound. Cool. Well, today on the show, we have one of the top thought leaders in retail, Andrea Weiss. Andrea has a storied career that has included operating gigs at Disney and Taylor, Guess, L Brands, and Delia's. She served on many boards, including GSI Commerce and Pet Boys, and is currently on the board of Cracker Barrel, Nutrisystem, and Chico's. She also started the O Alliance and sits on the SAP North America Advisory Board. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here, Scott. Yeah, let's start uh, with the most important of all those brands, Cracker Barrel. How do they make the chicken and dumplings so delicious? I know, I know, as a board member, you can't reveal all the secrets. But well, that would be that would be a, that would definitely be a, a classified secret. Uh, uh, but uh, that home cooking—it's America's favorite. You know, number one America favorite restaurant. It, so, is, it is, and that's yummy. one of my favorite items on. And there. that shop is carefully crafted to catch my children coming through there every time. Delighted to hear that. Yeah, it's almost like the e- evil merchants did that on purpose. <laughs> Yeah, I have a feeling that's why they put you on the board. You're kind of like, yeah, here's how you get them coming out of the store. That's actually true. The Disney attractions experience didn't hurt at uh, yeah. Cracker Barrel. Yeah, Disney's the expert at that stuff. Cool. Well, excited to have you on the show. We have like a million things we could talk about. I thought we'd start with, um, you know, we're here at Shop Talk talking about the future of retail. Uh, we talk a lot on the show about Mulligan. You know, this year, if we just look, we're mid-March and we've probably had more store closures than I think the recession. Um, so it's pretty brutal out there. Uh, you give counsel to lots of different companies. What What's your take on on the environment? Well, I think we're beginning to get real acceptance of the new reality. And it's, it's certainly not that there hasn't been, um, you know, precursors and lots of predictions about where the industry is going to go. I think two years ago, I, I wrote a paper through the O Alliance about this new world of 50-50. And the, the basic premise was that if you thought about your business with 50% of it coming through digital means and 50% coming from your own brick and mortar, and you looked at your current balance sheet portfolio of real estate, and the cost of the operating of the online business, customer acquisition cost, et cetera, and you modeled that out, you would have had a really alarming wake-up call. And most, most omni-channel guys are at you know maybe 20% on the high end, but most are like sub-10%. So there's, a, there's still a lot of disruption to come. Well, like if, I think we so. Um, what was interesting about the stat when I really dug into that is that um, if you extracted Walmart, from the retail numbers and you you went discreetly into certain businesses you found businesses that already two years ago were approaching uh, 50% you had um, William Sonoma for instance was already at that time at 50% of their business coming in direct to consumer um, you saw brands that I thought were leading indicators like urban 
Outfitters, where you have a millennial customer, they were at 38%. And even at Neiman Marcus, they were at that time anticipating an IPO. So they had released a red herring. And so you could read the data, and it was uh, over 30%. So that said to me, this world of 50-50 is not very far away. And you know, so those indicator lights, you know, I think retailers were taking comfort in the wrong stats. They were thinking, oh, it's only 3% of the business. Oh, it's only 2% of retail. Oh, it's only 9% of retail. But if you took out the Walmart numbers, you would have seen that the consumer was actually driving it in a very different way. So um, many are a little bit like an alcoholic that has, has to hit rock bottom before they start to uh, really want to go to rehab. And I think many retailers are recognizing that these traffic declines, this, the movement online, the growth of all the marketplaces are really going to fundamentally change their business. Do you think, um, so the department stores seem to be the ones kind of hit the hardest. So you've had Macy's closing stores, JCPenney, Sears. Do they survive this? Do they pivot into something else? Like when they call you and say, Hey, you know, we, we, we admit there's a problem now. What, what's your advice? Well, I think, I think some of those, uh, businesses absolutely can, uh, can thrive. Um, I think the form in which they will thrive will be very, very different. Um, we have a client that is in an emerging market in Mexico City. The first question the CEO and board asked me is, how do we prevent ourselves from ever falling into the path of the American department stores? What can we do right now as our market is an emerging market in, uh, in e-commerce to, uh, to prevent that? And so the first is rationalize the real estate. You know, so if you have uh, an overabundance of stores, you know, I, I see this rationalization of real estate as a very good thing. Um, then, you know, how do you then take the existing real estate that you decide to keep, okay, and make it truly a special shopping experience that is not the digital experience. That's not the idea to make the physical store a digital experience. You know, digital people are going to make the digital experience wonderful. But the physical store is about entertainment, it's about color, it's about theater, it's about all of those uh, attributes. So um, so that's how we're working to try to get department stores um, to think differently about their business model. Um, I think the days of pilot high, let it fly, lots of 25% off signs, okay, that has zero appeal, okay, to consumers and millennials even less so. Uh, I want to follow up on that, Andrea. You started out your career in in brick and mortar uh, customer experiences, as did I. Um, do you have a POV on how the the in store experience needs to evolve? Because to your point, <clears throat> I think it it has a long future and it's still still super important. But the best practices of store design from 1990 are not going to meet the expectations of the the shopper in 2017. Well, that's, that's absolutely right. And that's what we've, uh, what we've done is we're starting these reinvention processes in, in, uh, in Mexico. Uh, that client, uh, we took the decision to essentially take every single store and create a community connection for that store. Um, so although they have some assortment that is, uh, universal to the chain, 
Um, they have a lot of unique assortments. They have unique interiors and unique exteriors to the stores. Um, and we're really putting um, localized product in, community-related events there where you would bring the family, where would you, you would want to go and spend an afternoon. Great food and beverage experiences. Um, you know, perhaps my years at the Cracker Barrel Board have given me such a great appreciation for the community nature of dining and how that can be such an important part of the shopping experience. You see it in markets like here in Las Vegas, where the food and beverage and shopping experiences are all blended together to create an entertainment environment. You see it in Dubai. Um, so there are markets which have taken those steps forward, and they're having better results on productivity per square foot. Um, so exciting environment, really important, because a lot of marketplaces, they're they're not such a beautiful place to go. And even branded sites that are run by by a, a retailer or by a, a key brand can only do so much in content. They they can't really simulate the physical experience. What what do you think is the causality of these problems that people are having? Is it we're just overstored? Is it changing consumer behavior, or is it Amazon? Uh, all three. All, all the above. <laughs> all of Did the I above. Miss one? <laughs> uh, well, I would add to that um, mediocrity, um, tolerance of mediocrity, and not having a really high bar. In, uh, in operating of stores. I think that is also something that is part of the malaise. Um, you know, if I were to, to weight this, I would say certainly the consumer is at the heart of all of this. So the consumer is driving the change. Um, and they are in absolute control. Um, p- retailers always said, we love our customers. We're, we're customer centric. But they actually didn't behave like that. Um, they were more merchant-centric or they were more marketing-centric or brand-centric or even real estate-centric. Uh, so uh, this, uh, the, the customer really being in charge, I think that is a, a real fundamental shift. And the transparency. And the customer has all the pricing data. They can do comparative shops. They can shop across borders. Uh, so it is a, it is a very different customer-driven model. So... That's not the push model of the traditional retailer. It's a pull model. Um, you know, Amazon just keeps raising the bar on uh, and making uh, barriers to entry uh, difficult for retailers. You know, whether it's um, the speed of delivery, um, whether it's the um, you know new amenities that are being added on to the overall Amazon experience. Interestingly, a lot of those are entertainment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so be able to download and stream, uh, you know, movies and and TV shows and such. So uh, so Amazon just continues to move the ball down the field. Okay, and we're trying to catch up with that. Um, so I think that's that's definitely um, another really major driver. Yeah, the. Um so a million things do there. The so what do you when when brands kind of say to you, should we sell on Amazon or not? Um, this is one that a lot of people come on the show and really grapple with. What what's your advice to a brand around around that? Well, I think it I think it varies by brand, but for uh, for most brands, what I say is there is an intelligent way to participate in uh, in Amazon, um, and that the fears that they had uh, in the early days, which is well, Amazon will have all of our customer data. I mean, let's get real. Amazon already has every customer's data. They have uh, 50% of the American households by 2020 will have Prime. Yep. So Amazon has the data. So let's get over that one. Um, and uh, let's start focusing on traffic 
Amazon also has the traffic. So just retail 101 lesson of where would you put your store, you would put it on the street with the most traffic. So that tells me that there is a way for retailers to participate on Amazon. Um, the other is this naive belief that somehow your your suppliers, the brands that you might carry in your store, that those folks won't participate on Amazon. That's also incredibly naive. Um, I, I presented to the CEOs of major department stores globally at the International Association of Department Stores last May, and the discussion was on this topic exactly. And they were, I polled them before we started and they said, absolutely not. We would never go on Amazon. And they, and I asked why, and they said, well, because our brands, they would hate us to be on Amazon and they would never go on Amazon. And and so I said, well, let's list those brands. And so they gave me names of designer fragrances. They gave me names of fashion houses, footwear companies, et cetera. And, um, and then I just popped up a slide that showed the Cuccinelli cashmere sweatpants that were over $1,100 that I found on Zappos, which is, of course, Amazon. Mm -hmm. Um, I showed prestige cosmetic brands that had come in through Beauty Bar, of course, which is Amazon. Um, I showed them brands like Tory Burch, Gucci, Burberry, et cetera, who they said would never sell on Amazon, all actually doing very strategic and very careful product placements on Amazon. And then having advertising, which below the fold, okay, took customers directly to their site. So they were funneling traffic to their sites. Very intelligent idea. Um, so those are the kinds of things that when people say, we'll never participate in Amazon, I say, you haven't done your homework. You're not really looking. You're not digging deep. Um, now, how they do it, you know, I do think it, it varies. Um, you know, companies that have licensing product, I think it's easy for them. I think they can um, use Amazon as a search engine for their brand name, and what they sh- what they sell there might be uh, a designer eyewear or fragrance, and they're not really showing their fashion line. But um, but at least the brand is there, and uh, many customers, of course, think of Amazon as basically just a search engine for shopping. It's interesting. Um, we talk a lot about that, though. You know, fundamentally, most retailers underestimate Amazon. Um, I mean, you know, I think it was just two years ago when Amazon started to do a push into apparel, which is, I know, a category you've spent a lot of time in. Um, Terry Lundgren at Macy's is like, you know, sort of dismissing it and saying, oh, my gosh, they have no idea how difficult apparel is compared to the categories they're used to. They'll never be successful. And this year, Amazon will sell more apparel than Macy's will. Um, why, why do you think it is that retailers aren't more aware? Is it just that they're used to the old school or are they in denial? Like I, I liked your metaphor that they have to hit rock bottom, but it just seems like there's a lot of smart guys running retail. Um, why, why don't they figure it out sooner? Well, I, I don't think they have spent, uh, most have not spent their careers with uh, any kind of e-commerce or real direct-to-consumer, heavy direct-to-consumer experience. You know, I feel like in my career path, you know, I had a, I had a couple of key advantages, and one was that uh, one of the first companies that I worked with right out of graduate school was a direct-to-consumer catalog company. And so in the catalog business, you you learn about customer acquisition cost. And, and so you never took for granted your customer. You also understood life value of once you had the customer data. And, and you try to, you know, maximize that. I, I think for most retailers, the business model has been highly transactional. And there's not actually been a lot of thought around, um, true customer acquisition cost. I mean, you know, if we build it, they will come. And so, and then all of a sudden they didn't. 
so that was, that's one of the shifts. You know, I think the, I think omni-channel, okay, as a concept has actually been a huge distraction to retailers. Um, you know, that's, that's kind that's of what Jason makes all his money. So I don't, I don't yeah, know. well, I'm going to give you some new words for it. <laughs> all right. I'm, Hopefully I'm open. <laughs> okay. But here's why, here's why the, um, when you use the word channel, it's really about words and words really do matter when you're leading big organizations. So I think about Macy's who bet almost the whole farm on two concepts. They were going to beat Jeff Bezos at the Amazon game. Okay. And they were going to bet big on omni channel. Okay, so what that sounds like inside of a retail company, when you're an executive running a channel, okay, if your channel is growing, okay, so you run e-commerce and you're growing 25% year over year, you go like, hey, all good in my camp, okay, it must be those other people, okay, mm-hmm. that are in the traditional brick and mortar store that aren't really getting it. And so the channel actually reinforces the silo. So in the world we're moving towards, okay, there's a flatness that the consumers expect because they actually don't care what channel it comes from. So the word was intended to help the organization, you know, flatten out, but it was really more of an inventory optimization model than a real fundamental transformation of the business. So that's the reason I'm not a fan of the omni-channel word. Um, and I think Terry made a mistake on on that, and I think he made a mistake on trying to go to war with Amazon. Um, you know, and it was, you know, it was sort of, he put that stake in, in the ground. It's hard to pull it back. No, I, I, so I'll totally agree with that. I think I wrote a blog post two or three years ago where, you know, pre before Omnichannel became a thing, it was multi-channel and then cross-channel and everyone landed on Omnichannel. And I'm like, the, the focus here, right? The consistent thing across all those labels is they're all focusing on the, the channel, and that's exactly the part of this model that's wrong. Exactly. Well, it's you know, it's interesting. I decided to actually do the research to see who actually penned Omnichannel as the first uh, you know user, and it turned out it was actually a guy who's in strategy um, at SAP. So, uh, so I had a chance once I joined the SAP Executive Advisory Board to like, ask I him. Talk to this guy. <laughs> I want to find him. I'm like, how did that happen? And here's what he actually told me. He said, "Go and look at actually the quote." What I actually said is that because he's a bit of a futurist, so this this article was penned in uh, 2002, and you know, and by the way, retailers didn't adopt even omnichannel in 2002. They that that only came on uh, relatively recently. Yeah. So uh, so I asked him, you know, you know, how did it happen? He said, well, if you look at the real original quote, when I was trying to describe this new environment that we were moving into. I use the word seamless. It will be a seamless omni-channel, meaning one-channel, environment. The writer who was taking the interview had never heard the word omni-channel or that combination. And so she dug into that, okay, and that became the headline in the article. And from there, his words just took on a life of their own. But he said, but I was never really um, looking to talk about uh, the channel. I was actually trying to... Um, focus on the seamlessness, um, you know, what I call sort of the Uberization, the frictionless kind of retail environment. That's what he was trying to express. So, and somehow that channel word just, as you said, just went along with the flow and um, didn't really fundamentally change behaviors in the company. 
So. So what should retailers do? So instead of having, you know, a head of e-commerce and a head of stores, they should integrate it all. Um, I think we're seeing that kind of happen. So we went from two different P&Ls and thinking and now it's getting reintegrated. One of the, one of the casualties of that, though, is a lot of times the digital guys leave because they're kind of like eight levels from the CEO and it's viewed to not be strategic. Um, the only one I've seen the opposite is just what we've seen with Walmart and Jet where they've bought, they kind of have said, no, we're going to bring Lori in. And he's going to report to the CEO and all the store pieces are going to be beholden to him. So, right. so is that, do you think people need to do something that extreme to solve this? Well, I, th- I think in the case of Walmart, they needed a disruptor and they got one in Mark. Yeah. Uh, so Mark, you know, ultimate disruptive type uh, behaviors. And uh, so far he's, uh, you know, he's hitting the ground and he's running. He's disrupting. He's disrupting. He's <laughs> doing exactly what they said. Now, how, whether a disruptor sometimes is needed at a moment in time to kind of break a log jam, mm-hmm. um, you know, in many cases, some of the work I do inside of a company is to go in and break the log jam. Um, the, the issue that I think we're, we're all kind of missing a, a bit of is that these new positions injected into the old organism, they're being rejected. I mean, the body is rejecting those uh, many of those jobs, and you see a lot of turnover of some of the best digital people going in trying to help solve the problem because the rest of the organization is not prepared for the change. Um, this is a whiteboard exercise. I mean, this is literally, we have to redesign our business. And um, so it isn't as simple as we'll hire the great digital talent and throw them into the company or we'll merge the digital people back with the brick-and-mortar people. Um, so there's a lot of merit to this, uh, you know, sort of more radical approach that I think is, you know, potentially going on at um, at Walmart. And I know it's ruffling a lot of feathers. And, you know, sometimes that has to happen in order for a company to survive. Um, so Only way to make an omelet. Only way. Uh, I, I do want to talk a little bit about the sort of this trend I'm seeing recently um, that's somewhat distressing to me. Uh, in the early days of digital, you know, when it was that 1% or whatever, like the typical way a retailer solved the problem is you assign digital to the intern, right? Yes. Um, and so, you know, many of us, like our, our first generation job was to figure out digital for some retailer that really didn't care about it. Um you know, more recently, those interns have grown up, run pretty big P&Ls, and we, you know, we can go to a lot of retailers where uh, those those digital leaders have been successful and and built, you know, huge segments of their business. That, in your to your point, in some cases, are 30, 40, 50 percent of the retailer's total revenue. It feels like super recently, I've seen this alarming trend where retailers saying, "Check, we survived digital disruption." We, we, you know, cultivated a great digital leader and she helped us get uh, $3 billion a year in, in annual e-commerce revenue. Um, now we want to get more efficient. So we're going to realign our organization back to the old structure. And she's either going to move under the VP of store ops or more likely she's going to decide, screw you and leave. Um, and I, you know, my the premise there is that retailer assumes that digital disruption is behind them. And I, you know, I, I don't want to, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Well, clearly not behind us. I would say we are, we are still early in the fundamental changes because we haven't yet faced all the devices that are going to be talking to each other. Okay. We haven't really faced, you know, what the, you know, what's going to happen as you see, you know, echo and things like that become ubiquitous. So we've got a lot, a lot more change ahead of us. Um, 
you know, I think this, the structural issue has always been a challenge because people are still trying to build pyramids. They're still trying to build a traditional hierarchy. And the, the thing about the digital world is it is significantly flatter. And because it, you know, it uses data as a currency and that's, that's kind of what drives the business. Um, and that's what digital marketers know so well. It's, it's all about the data and then, you know, how, how you can measure everything that you do, which traditional retail, it has plenty of measurement, but nowhere near, okay, the kind of real time measurement that you see in digital. So, so I think the part of the issue is that the old organizational hierarchies are actually really part of the challenge that maybe in this new digital world, we need a different kind of organizational structure. Um, think about hierarchies came with management science, which is a new science. And it was designed for the industrial age where we manufactured things and we cascaded information down. Well, today in real time, we don't cascade information. Information is out there and everyone has it kind of at the same time. So, so I think the structure, okay, of the hierarchy is wrong and that, um, that perhaps more, um, you know, multifunctional kind of circular teams is actually how we're going to get this done. And I, and I think that, you know, it could be a store leader that, you know, that comes from the store operation side that could be the best leader for the team. And it could be a digital executive, um, because it's going to come down to the leadership skill of multiple functional, uh, skills. So, you know, you know, I don't know that any organization trying to basically put a round peg in a triangular hole is going to have a great outcome. And that's how I feel. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm talked to many, many people out in Silicon Valley that work in startup companies and early stage companies. I'm always fascinated by their structures, how flat they are. Um, how they work in cross-functional teams, um, how they launch product, um, and there's a lot to be learned there. Yeah, have you? Um, the the extreme of that model is holacracy. Have you seen this stuff that Tony is doing at Zappos? And uh, it's pretty, you know, want to see some people get unsettled. Like walk them through that. And yeah, like- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think people look at things like that and they're, they're immediately dismissive because I mean it's so outside their comfort zone. I think they feel that it's uh, you know it's really it's a lot of warm and fuzzy kind of stuff that isn't going to really make a difference. Um, you know, here at Shop Talk this week we've heard a lot about culture and a lot about how culture drives innovation, how it drives uh, you know customer centricity, etc. Um, I think people who dismiss experimentation with models might be missing part of the solution set of how we how we treat this new commerce Mm -hmm. because like i said customers are really agnostic completely and utterly agnostic about channel um and uh, they're looking for that frictionless kind of experience that delights okay and they don't really need to know how the guy behind the curtain does it and who does it they don't care I think that that's another great irony in our industry. Until recently, you could tell exactly how a retailer was organized by looking at the store directory or looking at the wayfinding in the store because the the whole taxonomy of shopping like completely revealed the organization of the buying structure behind the scenes. Absolutely. Well, so Jason, think about the word department store. Okay. Let's just start there. Um, you know, when, uh, when I went down and, and started working with this client that wanted to reinvent that model. Okay. I said, okay, first thing, let's get rid of the word department store. 
Um, and we do have actually have to have some structure of who buys certain product, but we are not going to think of ourselves as departments and we're going to, we're going to build these communities. And so words really do matter in leadership and you're nailing it right on the head. <laughs> so you mentioned shop talk, um, culture. What, what else have you picked up at the show? What are some of the, the, the themes that you're hearing behind the scenes? Well, I've seen, I've seen, um, you know, some really amazing presenters here. And, um, and you haven't even seen my session yet. I know. Yeah. Did you go to Jason's? Was he in? I did. Okay. I did. That's how I knew who he was when I walked in. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but I'd only, I'd only seen his mugshot up to uh, that point okay. in time. So, um, I look much better in the mugshot than I do. <laughs> You're fine, but you, you know, we're all on radio. So, yeah. you know, there I, you go. I have the perfect face for radio. <laughs> we all do. So, um, you know, I've seen some really amazing presenters. Uh, I, I think I was quite impressed with Mindy Grossman's uh, keynote. Mm-hmm. And, uh, she had good visuals, like that whole blackboard and all that that stuff was moving. That that was was great. But also in the messaging there, um, you know, that big breakthrough from going from one screen, the TV screen to millions of screens. Okay. And then how they had adapted. I thought that was a whiteboard example Mm -hmm. of somebody who has transformed a business. And I, you know, I applaud that. I think that's what's going to be needed by a lot of more traditional big box retailers. So that was a brilliant one. And by the way, they're, they're a perfect example of a brand that's living through your 50, 50. Uh, They're now more than 50% digital versus television sales. Exactly. And had they hung on and not uh, opened themselves up to some of these new ideas, I mean, her embrace of social media, it was not about the intern doing the social media program. Mm-hmm. I mean, social media was for her social selling. And then there was actually a brick and mortar example in there as well, because she has the pop-up stores that are going out, um, that are, you know, re-energizing some of the brands that they have. So, um, so I thought Mindy was, uh, was really one of the most impressive presenters that I've seen. Uh, and just as a side note for the listeners, HSN actually owns a bunch of brick and mortar stores under the Cornerstone brand. And, and I believe we've had Brian Colby on the show who, uh, is responsible for that part of the business. Yeah, they were talking about a front gate pop up, and the other one is at Garnet Hill. So. Garnet Hill, Garnet Hill, and yeah. she sh- and she it showed was in a container, which is correct, like a, a big container. trend right now. Yep. It's fantastic, kind of just fantastic, and um, and we'll take that brand uh, really to a millennial audience. And Garnet Hill was a quintessential baby boomer mm. uh, direct business. So, uh, so I thought that was quite impressive. I've also been really impressed with a lot of the breakout sessions here. Um, I, I love that format of, uh, of dialogue and the candor that you get to see in some of those, uh, conversations. Um, the, you know, the skepticism that's, uh, that's out there on a lot of things, including, I mean, I, I one that I thought was quite electrifying was, uh, some real challenges going out there to Pinterest and, uh, Instagram on like, are you really interested in helping us drive commerce or <laughs> what's the, what's the deal? It was a pretty hot conversation and, um, coming from someone who represented one of the fashion brands, um, you know, the, uh, whole returns area. Uh, was a pretty hot conversation as well and how that's going to evolve over time. So the, you know, shop talk gets, uh, high, uh, marks in my view for, for letting us have the kinds of conversations that all of us that are interested in commerce, um, have to have in order to solve some of these problems. And you're giving a presentation as well, or? I did. I actually, um, I already have had my, uh, I had two, uh, 
series, and I had an opportunity to uh, interview the uh, head of strategy for Salesforce. They, of course, originally were this was executive was with Demandware, and had um, you know stayed on since the acquisition, and now has a new role. And so we talked a lot about how what were they retaining from the Demandware culture. What was it like working inside of Salesforce and, uh, you know, how was that evolving? Uh, really, really positive, uh, conversation there with, uh, with, uh, Ron Garf. And then, um, I spoke with a lot of, uh, young CEOs that are, um, pretty impressive. The young gal who runs Orchard Mile. And, uh, you know, she got a chance to tell her story about culture. And then we, um, then we had two contrasts on innovation. Uh, eBags were led by a traditional retail executive that, came in to run a, a original this is a v1.com company ebags mm-hmm. it was around in the in the first bubble and um and has pivoted and managed to make itself through brick and mortar attacks marketplaces attacks and uh and you know it's like a 200 million dollar uh direct business and then a new startup called fabfitfun and what a contrast uh so uh so it was it was good to see the you know discipline and process that's going on inside of uh uh, inside of eBags, helping them continue to innovate, and then a startup company that's uh, trying to reinvent the subscription box model, which only three or four years ago was the disruptor, yeah. okay, in e-commerce. So <laughs> that's how fast things are moving. The pace of change is definitely accelerating. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. One uh, one topic we love to talk about on the show is, um, and Andy at Bonobos kind of coined this digital and native vertical brands. Um, what do you think about that model where these guys are building a brand online, getting it to kind of mass, and then they're opening up stores um, and, you know, they, they call them guide shops. And then that guide shop has a much smaller footprint. You frequently can't even buy from it. Um, but then they use that e-commerce infrastructure for the delivery of the product. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about those? Uh, lots of great ideas there to take away for the traditional uh, brick and mortar people. Uh, I was involved with uh you know, part of the strategic review that led to some of the reinvention at Restoration Hardware. And I remember those conversations distinctly because there was a buzzword at that time of showrooming. Retailers were really terrified. Okay, this is as the mobile device showed up in the customer's hand because people were showrooming. They were actually checking other brands while they were shopping in their store. It horrified retailers, okay? We had a little different view of that Restoration hardware. We sell furniture, showrooms. We should be a showroom. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so, and that, that has generally worked out well for the reinvention of restoration hardware. So, so I, I think that there's a, there's a lot of, whether it's pop-up stores, um, whether these guide shops, whether it's a, um, you know, it's trunk shows that are done, those kinds of opportunities for people to experience a brand, a new brand, uh, and then go online. I think there's a lot of merit to that idea. And I think for department stores, that says you may be able to have a different type of assortment in your store and really put the emphasis on theater and then have broad assortments online. So for instance, in, in the case of footwear, a gorgeous, stunning footwear, uh, floor in a department store and then an endless aisle of footwear that might appear online. Yeah, we also had a guest on the show, uh, Omar Saad, and he's a he's a um, he's an analyst, Wall Street analyst. And he covers uh, soft lines. 
Um, and he's done a lot of studies of China and he kind of believes we'll move to this concession model, um, which is kind of like Ron Johnson was right. So, you know, that he had, so Ron had this vision of JC Penney that there would be like a little, lots of little stores within the stores and the brands would control those little areas. And when I see these digital native vertical brands doing this, it's kind of interesting. You know, you can almost imagine a store having a bonobos little store in there, a dollar shave club, a mod cloth, you know, whatever. Uh, and maybe some traditional brands, maybe like a polo or a Tommy or something like that. That. Yeah. Do you do you think that's one? Do you think we go that path and like? What? I think I think that path already exists, and you you see it in some uh, successful uh, department store uh, remodels. You see, it's predominantly luxury brands, but they're operated exactly with that model. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they are the concession model. Um, the you know the mass market has not yet gone there, but in luxury, they're already there. So, so I do believe that will happen. Um, you've seen Nordstrom already experimenting with some of these, uh, some of these concepts that have had in store, um, uh, in store environments. It's been mixed, you know, uh, shoes of prey did not work in that kind of, uh, setup. Um, I love, for instance, what Harry's is doing at target. If you, uh, you know, walk down the aisle in the men's, uh, you know, toiletries area you'll see a gigantic orange razor and uh that you know that says you know alert alert here's harry's and you can buy and then you can subscribe Mm -hmm. and so i i think there will be a lot of those kind of crossovers and why not the the consumer as i said they're agnostic to the channel so you know let's let's figure out how to get the business and share the revenues and profits yeah. Uh, so turning our attention to the future, is there anything you haven't seen yet that you're expecting down the pipe? Like, you know, uh, there's a lot of interesting vendors on the show showing sort of all sorts of new experiences that we really haven't seen deployed in retail stores yet. Is there? Well, of course. I mean, things that have to do with augmented and virtual reality. Um, you know, everyone's trying to figure out what is that going to mean to retail? I mean, you know, I, I think this is... Uh, we're kind of at that, I call it the Google glasses stage <laughs> where no one's actually going to wear that big bulky headset and, and run around in a retail store. Um, Jason may. Well, no one, okay, no one Jason, Jason maybe. Pure is a publicity stunt. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a, it's a very disconcerting experience oh, yeah. when you, when you put that headset on. Yeah. Um, that said, there is, um, you know, there are uses for those kinds of technologies. Uh, back to Mindy Grossman, she showed, um, a home, uh, home shopping environment where they were showing a room interior and where you could literally see multiple applications through an, uh, you know, a, a augmented reality of different colors furniture styles you could change the furniture style you could see if the scale would fit in the room you could put your own room in so we're at the very beginning of all of that um so i i think that's that's really pretty pretty promising that that will um you know simulate some of the retail experiences i think it will slow down returns i think it'll allow for more customization personalization which consumers love so but that's that's really early right now um so we'll see I think it'll be fun to watch, participate in. I totally agree. And uh, I think that's going to be a great place to leave it because it has happened again. We've blown through all our allotted time. So, Andrea, I really want to thank you for taking the time out and uh, sharing your your perspective with us. Well, Jason, thank you. It's my pleasure. Scott, my pleasure. Delighted to be here. Thanks. We really appreciate it. And we'll see you at Cracker Barrel. 
Great. Have the fried chicken too. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to the Jason and Scott show for all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.